Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Mimiverse Monthly Audiocast. I'm your host, writer-director Christopher R. Mim, and I have to ask, are you there? Are you listening? Is everybody in? Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The ceremony is about to begin. The entertainment for this evening is not new. You've seen this entertainment through and through. You've seen your birth, your life, your death. You may recall all the rest. Did you have a good world when you died? Enough to base a movie on? Hi, how's it going? How are things? You may recognize the little thing I just did. I did not write it. It was from the late, great Jim Morrison of The Doors. It is June 2021. Things are interesting here in the Mimiverse. Things are interesting out in the world. Things are just freaking interesting. And if you are from the upper Midwest, you know that interesting is not always the nicest thing. See, here in the upper Midwest, and particularly in Minnesota, you always want to try and say nice things. You don't want to be mean. You want to be, you want to be nice. There's even a, a term for it, Minnesota nice. Problem is, by always hiding behind that veneer of niceness, you end up being sometimes very passive-aggressive. You know, in the South, you say to people, oh, bless your heart, which is kind of a way of saying, oh, aren't you precious, you're an idiot, or something along those lines. It's usually, it sounds nice, it's not. Up here, say you're in a band, and you uh, release a song, and you play it for someone, and you ask them, hey, what'd you think? And that person listens to that song, and it's not great. You don't want to say it's terrible. You don't want to be that guy. You want to be just like, ah, this is awful. You want to be nice. You don't want to hurt their feelings, right? So you say, oh, well, that was, it was, it was interesting. I've heard it quite a few times over the years when I've presented my movies to people and I say, hey, what do you think of that movie? What'd you think of it came from another world? And they're like, oh, it was, it was interesting. It's a, a nice way of saying something that sounds nice that is not necessarily nice, but can be interpreted to be nice. So... Things are interesting right now in the Mimiverse, so interpret that how you like. I am keeping extremely, extremely busy. There's been a lot of overlap with all of the projects I'm working on right now, and it's starting to get a little too much. And I've realized lately that I do, in fact, have a limit to how many things I can focus on at any one time. I have a million ideas, but I should never work on maybe more than two at once. I finished up the Mimiverse Holiday Special. I finished shooting it, I should say, and I'm in the final throes of editing it. I'm also shooting the new Phantom Lake Kids movie, The Phantom Lake Kids and the Day the Earth Abruptly Almost Ended, and we're knee-deep in that now. We've got a third of it in the can. We've been shooting pretty intensely the entire month of May. So I'm shooting a movie and editing another thing while working on my video game, Butch vs. Evil, and getting ready for, and this is the big news of the month, the release finally, of the Phantom of Kids and the Beast Walks Among Us. Recently, this past month, I was able to attend what I'm calling a contributor screening of The Beast Walks Among Us. I did not set this up. In fact, it was set up by the Perkins family. And if you don't recognize that name, go look at the credits of a lot of my movies and you'll recognize the last name Perkins showing up in many places. The Perkins family are this amazing family of people who discovered my movies and have now become friends, but also huge contributors. And they help out a lot. They've done props. They helped us film The Beast Walks Among Us, and they show up in the movie. 
And you can see a couple of them in the trailer of The Beast Walks Among Us. They've become an important part of the Mimiverse, not only as just fans and friends, but also behind the scenes as well. So they approached me about the idea of renting a theater and showing The Beast Walks Among Us for a very small select group of people. Basically, their family and mine. Because when you rent out these theaters, you can only bring so many people and, you know, there's all these protocols. But I was like, yes, let's do that. I haven't been in a movie theater for over a year. Let's do it. So we did it. And them being huge contributors, I was comfortable letting them see it. Plus, they're in the movie. So it was like, well, it's not, it's not spoiling anything. And I trust that they're not going to film it and put it out there. Not that that's really an issue I'm worried about. But I trust them. It went well. And I realized that we still don't know exactly what everything's going to be like going forward, right? We just don't. Who knows what's going to happen with the COVID thing? There's variants out there. There are vaccine skeptical folks. You know, it may roar back. I've been holding on to the beast walks among us with the idea that I should do this grandiose return to normalcy premiere. But you know what? After seeing the joy it brought to the Perkins family, but then also just experiencing it in a theater, I realized that the theater experience is not necessarily what it's about. It's about letting people see this awesome movie. And I'm very proud of it, and I want people to see it. So I was kind of thinking, well, maybe I should just release it. Maybe I should just let people see it. Maybe I should let go of this notion of doing this premiere as if everything hasn't changed. But everything's changed. Let's admit it. Life has changed. We're all different people than we were before this pandemic started. We've all been through this collective trauma together, and we've all come out of it different people. And I realized that I was holding on to that movie in the hopes of just ignoring everything that's happened in the last year and, and just moving forward as if everything's not different. But it is. And then I realized I really want people to see this movie because I think it'll make them happy. People have waited long enough. And most importantly... I had a discussion with Michael Kaiser one day, and we were talking about this, and I said, maybe I should just release it digitally. Just get it out there and let people see it, because I've let people see it now, and I feel like more people should see this. Plus, I get so many emails from people saying, hey, what's going on with the movie, that I'm kind of sick of it. <laughs> and I just, talking to Michael Kaiser about this, is, is realizing after I've, I've let people see the movie, that whatever I've been hoping and holding on to with holding on to the release of this, it's not worth waiting anymore. And people are excited, but also they want to know where I spent their 20 bucks. And so I've decided that I'm going to do something a little different because times are different. And that different thing I'm going to do is that I'm going to do a tiered release. I want to get the movie out there. I want people to see it. It's very exciting. I also want to celebrate it with the people who made it and let them see it on the big screen. But that's just not something we can do now. So what I'm going to do is just in time for the 4th of July weekend, I'm going to release on June 30th the Phantom Lake Kids and the Beast Walks Among Us on Vimeo only. Rental only. So if you really, really, really cannot wait to see it, this is your chance. You can watch it on Vimeo. If you have a projector and a laptop or something, you can watch it on Vimeo and project it on a wall and pretend you're having your own little premiere. And it'll stay that way, rental only, online, for two months. Then, on September 3rd, which is the Friday right before Labor Day, I will release the DVD and Blu-ray of it. 
So there's a little window there where you can watch it online. If you absolutely can't wait another two months, watch it online. If you pre-ordered a DVD or Blu-ray, you'll get it on or around the 3rd of September. Here's what really turned me on to this idea of doing this alternate release schedule. And it's that after talking to Michael Kaiser, he made a suggestion because I said to him that I was thinking of just releasing it digitally and then maybe in the fall if things are better. And, and they're definitely trending that way. And if you unvaccinated folks go get vaccinated, it'll keep trending that way even faster. And so when I was talking to Michael and I said, I think I'm going to do a, a digital release this you know coming month because I just want people, I really want people to see it. And there's just no guarantee that it'll absolutely be safe to do it in the fall. And even if I did, I don't know how many people are going to feel super comfortable going to a movie. I think movies are, are going to come back, but I think it's going to be slow. Even when we went to this movie theater and rented it out, there weren't a lot of people just in the theater, even though they were showing movies. I think that's one of those things that it's just it's going to take some time for people to realize it's safe and go out and do stuff again, right? And so I figured by the fall, maybe people will feel comfortable. But I know there are people out there who, who won't. And so whatever we are hoping to do that would be like the old days isn't going to happen. And I said, so I think I'm, I'm just going to do this digital thing and then release the DVD and Blu-ray later. Plus, it's kind of like they used to do in the old days where they'd release a movie uh, into a theater. And then several months later, you'd get the home video release, right? So that's kind of like that. And he said, well, that's a good idea. But what if you do that, you do the digital release, you do the Blu-ray and DVD, and then... Later in the year, if it is safe, you can still do an in-theater event, but you could do a double feature of The Beast Walks Among Us followed by The Unseen Invasion because The Unseen Invasion at this point is just going to end up being kind of ignored as far as like seeing it in a theater. And I was like, that's a great idea because then it celebrates them both and in essence would get us back on track that all of them would have had in-theater premieres, quote-unquote, and we'd be set and ready to go for next spring when we ideally release the uh, next Phantom Like Kids movie. And as soon as he sort of said that, I was like, that's, a, that's the way to go. That's it. And that's what solidified it for me. I could do the digital release in June, just like a blockbuster, that Wednesday right before the, the 4th of July weekend, right? Perfect time to have an outdoor movie or watch a movie with friends or whatever, especially now that the numbers look so good. And then a couple months later, just like Hollywood does, you can pick it up on Blu-ray or DVD. And then if everything works out, and this is still up in the air, see, this is the thing, we don't know, but if it does work out, we'll do a big event at the end of September, early October, depending on when we can get a theater. That's the way to go. And I decided that was it. We're doing that. That's the plan. So Wednesday, June 30th, the Phantom Lake Kids and The Beast Walks Among Us, you'll be able to watch it on Vimeo. The other thing that then worked out really nicely is that I realized this allows everyone to feel like there's an even balance of extra Mimoverse content coming out over about a two-year period. Because we did The Unseen Invasion at the end of December, then roughly six-ish months later, you get The Beast Walks Among Us, and then five, six months later, you get the holiday special, then five Six months later, you get the family kids in the day the earth abruptly almost ended. So it's like every six months you get new, cool Mimiverse content. After that, ah, there's nothing more. That's it. That's the end. I'm making one more movie and it's done. I guess that I should have led with that as the big news, huh? Okay, I'm kidding. 
<laughs> I hope someone out there is like, wait, what? What? That's it? I don't know if that's it. I don't, I'm not, you know, given the way the last year has gone, I'm not going to make any plans that there'll be more after that. But generally I get pretty antsy once I start finishing one thing up and I'm like, what am I doing next? So you'll know one way or another, but I'm not committing to anything. Although I already do have a great idea of something I want to do. So I'll say tentatively, probably more movies, <laughs> but as I mentioned with the two project limit, I can't think too much about that because I have two big projects I'm working on right now that I need to focus completely on and I can't think about more. So we'll see. We'll see. I really do genuinely hope I got one of you out there to be like, what? No, there might be more. I just can't say that I'm going to do this forever. Right? I mean, there's one thing we've learned from the stupid pandemic. You just don't know what tomorrow brings. Fingers crossed. Knock on wood, there'll be more. And I do have a really cool idea, so <laughs> we'll see. The Beast Walks Mars, coming out digitally, June 30th. Now, if you are a person who bought tickets to the live premiere, you will be able to take those tickets and convert them into other things. Either you can convert them into access codes to watch it online. So basically, say you bought two tickets, that would have been 20 bucks. You could take one of those tickets and convert it into an access code to watch it online. That would still leave you with 10 bucks. You could then take that 10 bucks and buy a DVD with that. I'd eat the shipping costs as long as you're not in Australia. Then we're going to have to work something out because shipping to Australia is like 25 bucks. Whereas shipping from Minnesota to say Delaware is five. So you can either do that. You can, you can take your tickets, your pre-ordered tickets, and you could turn it into a, an access code to watch it online. You could turn it into DVDs and Blu-rays. DVDs are 10 bucks. Blu-rays are 20 bucks. Or if you just want to hold on to them, when we finally do that event, that double feature, which I don't know exactly when it's going to be, but we're going to do it once it's safe. Like this is guaranteed. We're going to do this once it's safe. You can just hold on to those tickets and use it for that. But I want to give the opportunity for folks who might not be able to go to something like that. You know, they were going to go to the thing in April 2020, but now October 2021 is just something they can't swing. You can take that money and you can get access codes to watch it online or you can get DVD or Blu-ray or something so you can see it. And I'll be contacting each and every person who did pre-order tickets and ask them exactly what they'd like to do. So if you pre-ordered tickets to the April 2020 Beast Walks Among Us world premiere that did not happen. Check your email. And not just like any old email, whatever email address you use with PayPal, okay? All the tickets were bought through PayPal. So you have an email address that's associated with your PayPal account. And I'm going to be sending an email there. Some people have email addresses that are just specific to PayPal. Check that email address. I learned the hard way when it came to trying to contact all of the contributors to that which lurks in the dark that some people don't check that email. I did my best to try and contact every one of them and find alternate ways to find them other places, but there are still two or three people I just I can't find, I can't get a hold of. I even had phone numbers associated with them that they're not answering. So little worried, you know, hope you guys are okay, but it is what it is. Check your emails so we can figure out exactly what you want to do with your tickets. June 30th, your chance to finally see The Beast Walks Among Us. 
The other things going on, I already kind of mentioned, is that, uh, you know, the Mimiverse holiday special is coming along. We're in post-production now, and honestly, I have, like, one and a half scenes left to edit, plus credits, and then it's done. Because I'm, I'm looking at end of November to release it online, because it's just a special. I'm not going to do a, a theater thing for it, but it'll be released around Thanksgiving. I'll be done with that before the end of the month. July 1st. So I'll have several months to make sure it's exactly where I want it and get any other materials together and the DVD and Blu-ray of it, because it will be available on both DVD and Blu-ray. But I'll tell you this right now. The Memoirverse Holiday Special plays very much like a sequel to Danny Johnson Saves the World. So if you like Danny Johnson Saves the World, you like Steve and the Steve people, you will definitely like the Memoirverse Holiday Special. I'm going to sell it on DVD. When I sell it on DVD, it will only have the Mimiverse Holiday Special on it and some extras and stuff, but it'll, it'll definitely be kind of bare bones. When I sell it on Blu-ray, however, it will include Danny Johnson Saves the World. So you'll get a Blu-ray copy of Danny Johnson Saves the World with the Holiday Special all in one. So it'll be a little extra value there. They tie in nicely where you can watch Danny Johnson and then follow that up with the holiday special. I mean, the Steve people come back and there's a lot to do with that, that I try really hard to explain for people who have never seen Danny Johnson Saves the World. But if you've seen Danny Johnson Saves the World, you will really like it. The only other thing we've got going on is uh, we're, we're filming the, the Phantom Lake Kids and the Day the Earth abruptly almost ended. Like I mentioned, we have probably a third of the film in the can already. So that's exciting stuff. We've got it scheduled out, and if we can stick to the schedule, we'll have it all in the can by mid-July, which is good. Realistically, the schedule always changes. We already had to reschedule a couple little things. Little things, so nothing major. But we did have to reschedule some stuff, and this always happens. you got to be flexible. I would say by September, at the absolute latest, we'll have everything in the can. I would, I would, I would love to have everything shot by August 1st. I think the last day right now on the schedule is July 19th, but we'll see. It gets hot. Sometimes the weather doesn't cooperate and most of the movie takes place outside. So we are somewhat reliant on the weather being agreeable and eh, summer weather can be unpredictable. It can be ridiculously hot. It can be sticky and gross, or it can just, you know, be rainy and crappy. You just don't know. So we're going to have to just play it by ear and figure it out as we go. I've never, ever, even with the movie that I shot in my basement over the course of a couple months, I've never actually been able to stick to the exact schedule as it first came out. Heck, that which lurks in the dark got shut down the first time because we couldn't figure out the schedule. And then, of course, COVID happened and it destroyed the movie. But the point is, is that the, the filming schedule is never set in stone. Things change. You're dependent on stuff. People get sick. Things happen. So you just have to roll with it. And I always work in this idea of the drop dead date. But even then, the only thing that would stop us from being able to not shoot something because it's all outside is if the, the weather started to change and suddenly we're into winter, then we'd have to shut it down. But if we're not done by winter, when we're already a third of the way done, we have bigger problems than just some weather. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. So that is what's happening in the Mimiverse this month. Big release later this month. We got another project which should be done by the end of the month. We have another project just ramping up and going. And, uh, you know, other fun stuff happening. 
we're always moving forward. And of course, I mentioned Butch versus Evil, which if you're wondering what the hell Butch versus Evil is, it's the video game I'm working on. The old school Mega Man, Super Mario Bros-esque NES style platformer that I've been working on now for over a year. And I'm probably over halfway. It's I can't put as much focus and effort into it right now because of the other two projects. And honestly, the, the movie projects always take precedence. And so now it's, it's, it's a little backburnered. I'm not working on it as much as I, I was when I was just doing one project. I work on it as I can, but it's not coming together as quickly as it would if I could focus on that as like the second of the two projects I can focus on. You know what I mean? So we'll see. We'll see where that ends up. Realistically, I'm probably still a year away from having that at a place where I would feel comfortable releasing it. But once I do reach a certain point, I will be looking for testers. So if you're a person who wants to test out my video game and likes cheesy old video games, pay attention, I guess. And later in the year, I, sh I might have something for you to do for me. You could uh, test it out and be one of the first people to play it. When that becomes a thing, I'll let you know. Okay, that's what's going on. Before we go into the second part of our new series, An Oral History of the Mimiverse, I want to say the Mimiverse lives and dies solely because of folks like yourself who are willing and able to contribute to these projects. Since 2010, they've been crowdfunded, and that crowdfunding has kept us alive, even through some of the worst days of the pandemic. People like you have helped. Right now, you can still contribute to get your name in the credits of the Mimiverse Holiday Special, and I encourage you to do so. If you go to SaintEuphoria.com and find the Holiday Special, or go to SaintEuphoria.com slash holiday.html, you'll get right where you need to be, and from there you can contribute and get your name in the credits. The thing is, when I'm getting this close, once I finish it, I will close that and you won't be able to contribute. So you're running out of time if you have not contributed to that yet. Okay. So I highly recommend if you want to, to do so and do so soon. We are knee deep in the fandom like kids in the day the earth abruptly almost ended. So you can contribute to that. And we would very much like it if you would, because now that we are filming, we're spending lots of money. And since we have to spend money to make movies, if you can help out, you'd be doing us a huge favor to make sure that we can finish this awesome movie. Please go to SaintEuphoria.com, contribute to the projects you can contribute to, and as soon as you're able, check out The Phantom the Kids and the Beast Walks Among Us, which will be coming out digitally at Vimeo.com on June 30th. Again, if you pre-ordered advanced tickets to the premiere and you want to convert some of those, watch your, your mailbox. If you haven't gotten anything from me in like, say by the 15th, send me a message, go to saintyfora.com, contact me through that page. Let me know that you want to see it and you want to, you want access codes and you have tickets that you already paid for and you want to convert some of those. Let me know if you haven't heard from me in a couple weeks. Okay. So that's what's going on in the Mimiverse. Up next, we have the second episode of an oral history of the Mimiverse, where I'm going to go through and painstakingly take you through all the things that have happened to create and sustain the Mimiverse from where it came from. I mean, literally last month I went through like, when I was a child, I saw Star Wars. I'm, I'm getting that granular here. And, and we're in the second edition, so that's coming up here 
Well, how about right now? Here we go. The second episode of an oral history of the Mimiverse. Okay, welcome back to an oral history of the Mimiverse. This is episode two, The Monster of Phantom Lake is Born. When we last left off, I took you through every little step that brought me to why and how I wanted to make a movie. And I ended it with the epiphany that it was finally time to actually make a movie. I had lost my dad. My stepdaughter was diagnosed with cancer and I decided I'm going to die. So... I better do the one thing I've been thinking about my entire life, make a movie. October 2004 was when my daughter was diagnosed with osteosarcoma. Again, uh, and I mentioned this last month, I felt like I was cursed in some way, like everyone I care about was suddenly getting sick. I internalized that as somehow my fault. It's a thing you kind of go through when you're dealing with illness, especially severe illness like cancer in your family. I lost my dad to it, and I basically watched him waste away and die. I was there the whole time. Again, still kind of haunts me to this day. But it's also a weird motivator because I want to make my dad proud, you know? I want to do good things and, and I don't know, make people happy and make movies because it's something I wanted to do. And I mentioned that I was sort of the guy who was always coming up with ideas, but never following through. Well, Liz getting sick made me realize that I needed to stop being that guy. I needed to actually follow through on the things I've been wanting and, and get them done before I inevitably end up with cancer myself and, and dying as well, which thankfully I have avoided that up to this moment. But of course, cancer can strike anyone anytime. So it's scary. And I don't like medical stuff. If you listen to uh, my story about getting vaccinated for the COVID vaccine, I don't like medical stuff. I don't like shots. I don't like hospitals. I would be a terrible doctor. I'd be a terrible nurse because I'd never want to go to work. And I'd be passing out on my patients all the time. That's not, that's not good. I'm not made for it. But I got very paranoid that if I didn't finally do this thing, it was just never going to happen. But once I said, hey, I'm going to make a movie, I had no idea what kind of movie I wanted to make. I've been a huge sci-fi fan for my entire life. I love Star Trek and Star Wars. You know, I grew up in Star Wars. I, was, I mentioned how my very first memory of anything is seeing Star Wars at a drive-in. And so I've been just a big sci-fi nut for a long time. And growing up, my dad was a huge fan of cheesy monster movies. And honestly, cheesy horror movies. He loved cheesy horror movies and science fiction movies. And he grew up in a small town in Minnesota called Ivanhoe, which is very small very close to the border of South Dakota. And when he was a kid, the town had a movie theater on Main Street called the Gem Theater. And he used to tell me these stories about how he would sneak away from his farm chores and go into town and see movies when he wasn't supposed to. He told me how he would get in trouble with his mom because he'd, he'd try to hide the fact that he did this, but he would be so freaked out by it, whatever he saw, that he would have trouble sleeping and his mom would figure out, oh, you went to the movies, didn't you? And he was born in 1948. 
And so he, you know, was of a perfect age to be into the, the cheesy monster movies of the late 50s. And now, if you know anything about the history of, of that era, the sort of the atomic monster movie era, 1957 was a particularly banner year. So he'd been about nine years old that year. And so a lot of those movies back in the day, really, 1957 was just a huge year. So from 57 up through the early 60s, that's really the, the era of, of movies that I'm emulating is about 57 to probably 65, 66 maybe. And a little before too. I mean, you know, War of the Worlds came out earlier, uh, Rocket Ship XM. There's a lot of good sci-fi and horror in the, the early to mid 50s as well. But 57, 58, 59, there's, there's just something about those couple years that there were just so many great, cheesy, low budget B movies coming out. And of course, the drive-in and teenagers had a lot to do with that. The boom of, of car culture amongst the youth, rock and roll, all of that stuff just came together. But he was a kid, so he was really excited to go to the movies and see these cheesy horror movies and then get freaked out and couldn't sleep, and then he got in trouble for it. One in particular he really liked was uh, Village of the Damned. It's a British movie and these creepy blonde kids with these creepy eyes, and it freaked him out. And what's really funny is that as a kid, that stuff never bothered me. Like, creepy-eyed stuff never has, has never bothered me. But it really freaked out my dad, especially when he was a kid. Just weird eyes just got him. Weirdly, all my kids, when they were really little, were freaked out by weird eyeball things. This is a weird aside, but my son Elliot, there's this movie called The Brain from Planet Eris, which is not a great movie, but it's a fun 50s movie that I really like. One of the stars of that movie is a man named John Agar, who, if you've seen Demon with the Atomic Brain, you've heard the name Agar before, and that was a tip of the hat to John Agar, because John Agar was basically Dan Shervin before Dan Shervin was Dan Shervin. John Agar had this presence, and he did a lot of cheesy B-movies, and Whenever he was in them, he just, he kind of, I feel like he elevated it. And not to something grandiose, not to Citizen Kane levels or something. He holds your attention. Even if the movie's crappy, he seems like a, a nice guy, right? He just seems like a great person. And you could tell he was having fun. Sometimes you watch these old movies and you can tell there were actors who were just slumming it. Because they were stuck in these movies. Because the studio made them. He just seemed to be happy to be acting. He just seemed to be happy to be in movies, and that came through. You could tell he enjoyed it. And it's the same energy that I saw in Dan Shervin, who we'll talk quite a bit about as this goes forward. But there's a, there's a presence to the person, and it comes through on screen, and it's very hard to, to replicate. You either got it or you don't. It's that it quality, right? And maybe John Ayer was never truly the it guy, but he had that screen presence. So... There's this movie, The Brain from Planet Eris, and in that movie, he gets taken over by this alien creature from another planet uh, that's like a floating brain, and it makes his eyes glow kind of silvery, right? And they put these big contacts in John Agar's eyes, and it makes him creepy. When my kids were little, especially Elliot, he couldn't stand it. They freaked him out like nothing else. He just, he hated it. And all my kids were like that. That stuff never bothered me, but it, it bothered my dad. So I think that's, maybe it's genetic and it, it missed a generation. I don't know. Or, or maybe because my dad hated that stuff, he avoided that stuff and made sure I never saw that kind of stuff when I was a kid. And so I just never experienced it when I was little. 
Huh? Anyway, back to the story. So my dad would see these cheesy movies, and, and growing up, he was very much into the movies. We went to the movies a lot. We went to the drive-in all the time. We went and saw Superman the movie. He loved Superman. He loved Star Wars. He liked science fiction. He liked horror movies. To a point. He was not a huge fan of super gross movies. And once, once movies became more about just grossing you out as opposed to scaring you, he'd sort of lose interest. But, you know, he loved movies like The Exorcist, which uh, I have a whole story about The Exorcist. But we won't talk about that now because that's like the movie that freaked me out as a kid. But I digress. So growing up, my dad, you know, really liked movies. And when home video became a thing, right, when VCRs started becoming common, he was kind of an early adopter. So not even necessarily common, but at least available. He jumped on it and he bought a Betamax player because I think he read that it was higher quality because I think technically it was higher quality, but the quality was so subtle between the two, it didn't really matter. But he jumped on Beta. There's a, a, a video store near my parents' house called Video Expressions, which is now an empty building, sadly. Video Expressions, it was just like a nice little neighborhood video store. And we'd go there all the time. And, you know, my brothers and I would rent crappy 80s stuff that we wanted when we were kids. And my dad would often find movies he hadn't seen since he was a kid. And he would rent them. And he would watch War of the Worlds and This Island Earth and, you know, just the cheese he'd seen. And I'd catch it and I'd watch it. And so those cheesy movies became somewhat associated with my dad. And in fact, when he passed away and, and we held a funeral, my older brother gave a eulogy and he mentioned how he loved movies and he loved anything that involved aliens and anything that involved zombies or better yet, alien zombies. And that was just him. He loved cheesy movies. So I always very much associated that sort of cheesy movie thing with my dad. And one night, early 2005, I had decided I'm going to make a damn movie, right? It was in my head. I'm making a movie. I don't know what to do, but I'm going to make it. I picked up the DVD of Ed Wood. Now, I've always loved Tim Burton. Beetlejuice is one of my all-time favorite movies. Pee-wee's Big Adventure is amazing. I just, I loved his style, especially his early stuff. I really, really dug it. I had a huge crush on Winona Ryder because I was 11 or 12 when, when Beetlejuice came out and it was like a bit of an awakening, <laughs> shall we say, about goth girls. And there was just something about the cuteness of Winona Ryder. I still think she's adorable. That's neither here nor there. I didn't see Ed Wood in the theater, but I, I picked it up on, on DVD and, and, Decided to to watch it. And I watched it one night. Liz was home from the hospital from one of her chemo treatments. Strangely, where I'm sitting right now in my office used to be our TV room. We mixed it up. You know, you rearrange your house over the years. And where I'm sitting right now is literally where the TV was. And I was sitting across the room where I am right now watching Ed Wood on, on the big HDTV I'd bought. And it was a projection model. It was huge. And it was 1080i. It wasn't even super nice. But it was a huge improvement over the old CRT models, right? And we watched Ed Wood. Liz was home from her treatments and because her tumor was under her right knee, they did surgery to remove a chunk of her bone and replace it with a cadaver bone. And so she couldn't go upstairs and we have a walkout basement. And so she would basically kind of live in the basement and watch TV and just hang out down here and we'd bring her food and everything Everything was, was self-contained down here. So we'd come down, we'd hang out with her and watch movies. And we decided it was late one night on 
some like on the weekend and I wanted to watch Ed Wood and Liz loves movies as much as I do. She sees everything movies, TV. She's a watcher. She's not really a maker, although she's been in my movies, but she's very much, she loves TV and movies. She was up for watching whatever. Elliot was asleep on Steph and Michael may have not even been here. He may have been at his dad's. I don't know. I just remember it was us three plus sleepy Elliot. And we watched Ed Wood and I love that movie. It's a great movie. It's about making movies, which having a very active interest in doing so. I love that. I love that it was about the 50s. I love that it was about Ed Wood and sort of the underdog, but it was also Tim Burton and, and, and Johnny Depp's so great in it. It's just, it's such a, it's a great movie. And there's a scene in the movie where they're filming Glenn or Glenda. It's a scene where Johnny Depp in drag, he's outside on the, on the street and he walks up to a, a window and looking in at, at clothes or whatever it was. And like, he's thinking about what he wants. And in the movie, someone's like, hey, the cops are coming. They realize they don't have any permits. They realize at that moment that they're just completely guerrilla-style filmmaking, right? And Johnny Depp's like, we don't have a permit. Run! And they just run. And for some reason, that moment, I thought to myself, I could do that. I could just throw together a group of people and just start shooting stuff, guerrilla-style. Just, just do it. That's when I realized, I was like, maybe... I should make a cheesy black and white monster movie. I should do that. And then I started thinking about my dad and I was like, yeah, my dad would have loved it. I can do it as a little, just like tip of the hat to him as a little homage to these movies, but then also uh, a little love letter to my dad. And, and that's it. That's what I should do. I should make a cheesy monster movie. I could do that because it could be low budget and black and white and we could just film it all guerrilla style and just grab a camera and a crew and just do it. That's it. So that was the moment when I was like, I'm making a cheesy monster movie. And then I was like, but how? Because I wanted to make sure if I'm making a movie, I didn't want it to look like it was shot on video, at least not camcorder video. I mean, we're talking early 2000s, right? There really aren't a lot of consumer HD cameras available. And even things that are available are all looking like old VHS kind of stuff, right? They look like, like 30 frames a second video. They, the, 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 the sort of thing that if you grew up in the 70s and 80s and 90s, you know that video of you as a kid, right? It looks like video. It doesn't look like film. I wanted to make something that looked like film because movies are made on film. But there's no way in hell I can afford that. Film is expensive. You got to buy it. You got to shoot it. You got to develop it. Then you got to edit it and you got to hope for the best. And so I was, I was kind of like, well, what do I even do? How am I going to shoot a movie that looks like a movie that doesn't look like crap? The internet was, was a thing. I mean, it was the early 2000s. So I had a computer. I was like, you know what? I'm going to just go look it up. And I started looking it up. What makes a movie look like a movie? And I started learning about frame rates, 24 frames a second. Film runs at 24 frames a second. And that's part of what gives it that weird, dreamy quality that film has. And there was all this stuff that went into, like, video runs at 30 frames a second. And you can't really force video to run at, at 24 frames a second and all this. I mean, it was like, this is, this is older technology. So it was, there were limitations. And that's why things were the way they were. But then I read a story about this movie called The Lost Skeleton of Cadaveral, which was filmed on video, but made to look like film because it was shot 
on a specific kind of digital camera. So I ended up down this rabbit hole. So this movie was shot on video, but looks like film and was shot for a low budget and is supposed to seem like an old 50s cheesy movie? It felt weirdly like kismet, right? It was fate that I should find out about this movie while looking into making my own. So I found a copy of it and I watched it. And I laughed my butt off through it. You know, people ask me all the time, like when I tell them what I do, they're like, oh, like Lost Skeleton. I mean, I guess my movies are different, but not entirely different, right? Because they're cheesy monster movies made to look like old movies. The difference between what I do and Larry Blameyer does is that he writes straight up comedies. His movies are meant to be funny. And not all my movies are. Some of my movies are. But the joke is never that it's that the acting is terrible or the special effects are terrible. I, I really do try to make good movies, but I'm very limited in my abilities and my budgets and my resources that I think where I strive for authenticity is that I'm just trying to make good movies, but I'm very limited in how I can. So part of the fun of what tries to make them seem like old movies, and believe me, I fool a lot of people into thinking they are, is that I just try really hard, <laughs> but I don't always pull it off. Whereas Larry Blameyer, who made The Lost Skeleton of Cadaver, is a very talented writer, and his dialogue is so absurd, and he understands absurdity in a way that I don't, I guess, or, or at least I can't produce. And so I liked Lost Skeleton. I thought it was hilarious. But I realized when I watched it, I was like, you know what? This looks like a cheesy old movie, but it was shot on video. So I was intrigued by this. So I ended up doing even more research. It was like seeing that movie after finding out about it, after seeing Ed Wood, it felt like this, you know, almost like a, like a cosmic roadmap, right? I felt like my dad was reaching down from beyond the grave and being like, follow this path and you'll get to where you want to be. And that sounds cheesy, but that's, that's how it felt. You know, I was thinking about my dad a lot because of Liz's illness and all the things going on. And I just, I just, I, I sort of opened myself up to it and said, you know what? We're going to follow this path. I'm not giving up this time. I'm not going to just have an idea and be the idea guy. I'm going to be the guy who does it. I've decided I'm making a movie. Then I see Ed Wood and I say, you know, I'm going to make a cheesy monster movie. And in the research on that, I realized I can do it on digital video because I found this other guy who made a movie that looks like a cheesy monster movie. And I was like, that's it. This is my roadmap. And from all that stuff, I learned about, you know, what kind of camera I could get and how much it would cost and all these other things. And, and I decided that I was going to buy a camera because once I had a camera, I was sure as hell going to make a movie because I spend money on it. I'm going to do it. I'm one of those guys. I'm like the annoying dad. I'm like, uh, why didn't you finish this pretzel? I don't care if it fell on the ground. There's nothing on it. Brush it off and eat it. That is a waste of good money. I spent a dollar on that pretzel. And so I started researching cameras and sound and how to make a movie. Honestly, my only experience up to this point was doing the public access stuff that I did for college. And so I started looking into how do you do lighting? If I were filming outside, how do you do lighting? <laughs> Literally learning it all on the internet. I was like, oh, two point lighting. Well, what do I do for lighting? Ooh, I could use work lights. You know, it's like all these little things coming together. And I realized I can do this. I can actually make this movie, but what? I want to make a cheesy monster movie. I want it to be a retro 50s one to pay homage to my dad and the movies he loved, but also the movies I loved growing up. How do I do it? What do I do? So I learned all the how. I looked it all up online and took a bunch of notes and, and worked it all out. And then I told my friend Josh, I mentioned Josh Craig, he played Professor Jackson and he was an actor and I got to school for theater. And I, I said, you know what? 
I'm going to make a movie. And he's like, yeah, of course you are. Cause you've been saying that for 10 years. Of course you are. You're going to make a movie. And I'm like, no, really it's happening this time. He's like, oh, sure, sure, sure. And he didn't believe me. And there's something about that that I was like, I'll show you, you son of a, you know, it's just like, I'm going to do it. I remember hanging up with him that night after I talked to him on the phone, which is something you used to do before texting became the thing. And I sat down on my computer and said, okay, I'm making a monster movie. What kind of monster movie am I going to make? I'm going to start writing a damn script. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to make it. I said, okay, I'm from Minnesota. What does Minnesota have? Minnesota has lakes. I'm going to make a lake monster movie. That's it. It's a lake monster. And there are teenagers because it's a monster movie in the 50s. So you need teenagers. And a scientist. Ooh, and he's got to have a love interest. Ooh, and... I can totally bring in the canoe cops. That stupid thing Josh and I made up all those years ago. I can bring it into the whole thing. And it all clicked at that moment. It was like, as soon as I said, monster movie, lake monster, boom. And I started writing. I don't actually know how to write a script exactly. I just did my best. Figuring, I'm the only one who's really going to see this. I'm going to be making this movie as long as the dialogue is clear. And I looked up a little information on how to format a script and did it totally wrong, but I looked it up. So I started writing five hours that night. I ended up with, I don't know, 10 pages. The next day I wrote more. The next day I wrote more. I felt compelled to do this. It, it was just flowing out of me. And about a week later, I called Josh and I'm like, so, hey, man. We're totally going to make this movie. And he's like, yeah, right. Just like we've been talking about for the last 10 years, you're making a movie. I'm like, no, check your email. He's like, what? I'm like, check your email. And he goes and checks his email. And he's like, what's this? I'm like, that's the first half of the script. He's like, are you serious? I'm like, yep. And you're playing the professor. You're the, you're the, the scientist. He's like, holy crap. Seriously? I'm like, yeah. I've also found a, a line on the camera I'm going to get. It's a Panasonic. It's called a DVX 100. And you can totally film onto these little like mini DV tapes and it films at basically 24 frames a second. So it looks like a movie. It looks like film, but it's on video. And he's like, holy crap, are you serious? I'm like, we're doing it, man. We're doing it. He's like, okay, well, I'll, I'll read it and get back to you. And he read it and he called me back and he's like, dude, this is good. Keep going. I'm like, okay. He's like, you're serious. We're doing this. I'm like, I'm doing this. I'm going to need your help. I'm going to need your help with casting. I don't want to do that. We're, I mean, there's characters and people and, and we'll just, we're going to do it. He's like, okay, finish it. I was like, okay. And so I spent, I don't know, I think it was that night I, I was sitting at my kitchen table on a laptop writing and Michael came home and he was, you know, 15 at the time. And he was like, what you doing? I'm like, I'm making a movie. He's like, Oh, for real this time? And I'm like, no, for real. I have a script. I'm writing it right now. And he's like, oh, really? Could I be in it? <laughs> I was like, do you really want to be in it? He's like, sure. I was like, well, do you want to be the monster? And he's like, yeah. Yeah, I want to be the monster. And I'm like, okay. Then you're the monster. And it was just like, all right, I guess we got ourselves a monster now. And so I just wrote and wrote and wrote until it was done. And it was like every day I made time to write until I finished it. And then I did. I would send pages to Josh and just be like, check it out, check it out. And, and you know, it all came together. And I didn't have a title, but I had a script, this monster movie. And I remember I was talking to Steph one night about this monster movie I wanted to make. And she, of course, was very much focused on Liz. She wasn't focused on what the rest of us were doing. We were, we were keeping busy so that she could focus on making sure Liz got through this. 
And so she was often away at the hospital for chemo treatments and, and whatnot. So she wasn't always around. And, and it was just kind of like Michael and Elliot and I hanging out. And so they knew what was going on. I mean, Elliot was kind of oblivious because he was like two years old. But, you know, Michael was very much like into this because it kind of gave him something to do and something to look forward to while his mom and his dad were very much focused on making sure his sister pulled through and getting her two of these appointments and dealing with the aftermath of the chemo. And, and like, there's so much that goes into that, right? And they were focused very much on her. And, and so Michael and Elle and I were kind of our own little unit, kind of trying to pull each other through. And one of the things that kept me very focused and busy was working on this script. So one night I was telling Steph about this. I was like, I'm writing this script and it's a monster movie, like a cheesy 50s monster movie that I'm going to make. She's like, cool, you're really going to do it this time? And I'm like, yeah, I'm doing it this time. She's like, okay. And I'm like, I found a camera and I'm going to buy it. She was like, well, if it's not going to be too expensive and you think it's in the budget and you can make it work, go for it. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm doing it. She's like, good, this is cool, do it, go for it. It's like, okay. And I said, but I don't have a title yet. It's a monster movie, it's a lake monster movie, and I don't know what to, what to call it, the monster of something, right? She's like, well, back in McGuanago, where I grew up, McGuanago, Wisconsin, which is sort of in the weird halfway point between Madison and Milwaukee, she's like, we have a lake back home called Phantom Lake. And I was like, Phantom Lake, that sounds cool. I said, oh, so it'd be what? The monster of Phantom Lake? And the moment I said it out loud, I was like, that's the title. She's like, it is? I'm like, yeah, that is, that's perfect. The monster of Phantom Lake. That just sounds so cool. It rolls off the tongue and it just, that's it. She's like, really? I'm like, yeah. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to throw some stuff in there about McGuanago because whoever made a movie that takes place in McGuanago, Wisconsin, right? And she's like, yeah, do it. So I went back and I added some dialogue about McGuanago, Wisconsin and said it there. Which part of me wishes I wouldn't. <laughs> because part of me is like, oh, I should have just made it some fictional place in Minnesota because I'm a Minnesotan and now it's, you know, Wisconsin. And there's, you know, there's a rivalry there with the, you know, the Vikings and the Packers, you know, Wisconsin, Minnesota. They're very similar. So there's, there's very much a rivalry there. But at the same time, I was like, it works really well because Phantom Lake, it just sounds great. Suddenly I had a title. And I had a finished script and I told Josh, okay, I'm ready to go. We're going to make this movie. And he's like, we're making a movie. I'm like, okay, now we need to figure out exactly who's going to be in it and where we're going to shoot it. And I ordered a camera, which was like at the time, like 3,500 bucks, which I put on a credit card, probably could have rented one for cheaper, but I was just like, nope, I'm going to own it. Because I'm going to make more movies. I know I am. It was just like, I, I, I was crazy, right? I was a little, I was a little out of sorts. A lot of stuff was going on in my life. And I was very, uh, you know? And so I was uh, not always, I suppose, making the most um, sound decisions exactly. But I was just, I was inspired. And I was like, I'm doing this thing. And Josh and I talked about it after this, after it was all like, we're doing this. And I'm waiting for my camera. And then. We're sitting down hanging out and he's like, yep, we're doing this. And I'm like, yeah, we're doing it. We're going to make a movie and then we're going to have a premiere at a movie theater. Cause I want to, if I'm making a movie, I want to see my movie on a big screen. It doesn't have to go Hollywood or anything like that. Cause it probably won't. Right. He's like, yeah, probably I'm like, but we're making a movie. So we're going to rent out a theater 
and we're going to show it on the movie screen so we can see our names up on the big screen just once. And he was like, deal. I'm like, yep. And I said, and then I was looking into stuff and I found out that you can totally get DVDs made. And I was coming off of being in bands, right? We looked into getting CDs made and stuff. So I was like, so this isn't much different, right? They'll just, you send them all their stuff and they'll make DVDs for you and you can just sell them. And he's like, oh, awesome. Let's do that. And so we came up with this plan, which was we were going to make this movie. We were going to release it. And by release it, I mean hold a premiere at a movie theater. That was us releasing it. And I would have DVDs to sell of the movie. I mean, that was that was as far as the plan went. And the joke was, we're going to make a movie. We're going to show it at a theater. We're going to have a thousand DVDs made up. And in five years, we'll be sitting on the couch watching TV and go, hey, remember that movie we made five years ago? And I'll be like, yeah, there's 800 copies of it still sitting in my damn garage. <laughs> And that was the joke, was that we're just going to make this movie because he'd always wanted to be sort of in a movie. Or at least he had made it seem like he was as excited about it as I was. And maybe he was just wrapped up in my own enthusiasm. But I always got the feeling that he was sort of along for the ride, you know? He wanted to make a movie with me, and maybe he just wanted me to make a movie so he could be in a movie. I don't know. Regardless, he was definitely on the Monster Phantom Lake train with me. You know, we had talked about making a movie, he and I, and, and came up with all these movie ideas and, and him being an actor, you know, I mean, it's just he, he wanted, as far as I understand it, to be a part of that. And so here we were, we were doing it. We had a script and, and we had this, this solid idea that we were following through on. And I had a camera coming and a, and a $200 microphone specifically for it. And just like, we were doing it. And I started spending money <laughs> to make this movie. I bought lights after researching what to do and how to do it. And I realized that I could buy a couple $20 Sears work lights and those would work perfectly as night lighting for the night scenes. And, and it just all started coming together. Then I realized I was like, well, okay, we need a monster and we need actors. And Josh being a guy who has done a lot of theater in his life was like, well, we need to have an audition. And I was like, I don't know how to do an audition. What's an audition? I mean, I knew what it was, but it was like, I don't know how to hold one. Where do we even do it? And he's like, let me talk to my church. Because he's part of this Unitarian church. And I was like, okay, talk to your church. So he talked to his church about uh, using a, a room in, in, in the church to hold auditions. And I was like, okay, I guess we know where. Now what? And he's like, I don't know. And I was like, what about Craigslist? And he's like, Sure that's a thing. And I'm like, okay. So I jumped on Craigslist and I put out a, an audition notice saying, Hey, I'm making a movie. I'm new to this. I don't know what I'm doing. And we need actors. Here's what we need. And we got a lot of interest in this project. A bunch of actors contacted me through Craigslist. And this apparently was something that I didn't know you weren't supposed to do or that no one did, but anyone who contacted me saying, I would love to be considered for this role because I listed them out. And I said, oh, okay, well, here's the script. Give it a read and see if you're interested. Apparently no one did that. And no one really does that. They don't let you see a script beforehand. But I was like, here, take a look. And everyone who read it was like, this is great. I, I want to be involved. And I was like, okay, so we're doing this audition. And we set it up for, I think it was one or two days of, of auditions. And we had a whole schedule and, and we were just going through and having people basically do their own little monologue just to get a feel for that person. And, and we had sides and stuff and, and we went through and, and did the, the audition. And, um, I mean, it went 
obviously pretty well. We had Josh as the professor already. We had Michael as the monster. And then we had me playing the the gruff polluter guy, right? That was, I wrote that with me in mind. I figured, okay, I can do that. And we had everything else to be filled. And so we saw a lot of different people. Basically, everyone we asked to be a part of it accepted. There wasn't a single person who changed their mind or we had to rethink any one person or any one thing. It was like, this guy is this guy. This person is this person. This woman is this woman. And we just, they all fit. We had Josh read with a lot of them. I just sort of watched and we filmed it all. And I actually have those tapes somewhere of all their original auditions. And honestly, I should someday release them all on a Roku channel or something just to get a little piece of history like that. But uh, yeah, everyone just did a great job. The ones that stand out to me after the fact now, I remember Scott Tallman, who ended up playing Sven, his audition was really funny. His monologue was really, really funny. And he did a great job. And honestly, the moment he read, it was like, he's Sven. Rachel Grubb came in and gave a very memorable audition. And I don't know if it was exactly what she read or what she did, but it was just like, she stuck out in a good way. And I was just like, she's got the quality I'm looking for in the Amy character. She's definitely, she's, she's it. Leah Horton, who ended up playing Stephanie Yates, she had sort of palpable chemistry with Josh. Of all the actors we saw, they just worked. She got what we were going for. And the way they play on screen, that that just popped in the audition. The scene they did together, I was like, yeah, yeah, this this is it. This is this is this is definitely what we're looking for. And then lastly, uh, Mike Cook. No offense to any of the other actors, they all did perfectly fine. But Mike Cook in particular stands out the most because he scared the shit out of me, which sounds weird, but he seemed very intimidating. You know, he had a long resume. And he has a formidable authority about him. And it just came through, kind of just instantly felt like I look up to this guy. This guy's, this guy's cool and scary. I mean, I was 28 and he seemed scary, but not in a bad way. Just in a, in a like, he would have the authority you were looking for in a character like Gustav, right? This sort of like cop who's, who's got some experience and, and... He could do the accent just right, you know? He knew we were going for the Iron Range thing. He was, he figured, he knew it. He got it. And I almost felt like it was like, why do you want to be in our movie? You seem like you should be in other stuff. <laughs> like, why are you slumming it in our movie? I'm a nobody. I've never made a movie. You, you seem like you should be in other stuff. You should be in big stuff, not my crappy little movie. And so I was just, I, was, I felt intimidated by the guy, but he was so good. I mean, that was the thing. It was like, he was just good. And he had the presence I was looking for. But it was also just like, he's scary. I want him in my movie. But I always felt kind of like, why as a guy like you, with as much talent as you have, wanting to slum it, my cheesy, no-budget monster movie? You know, I didn't get it. But I figured, hey, if he wants to, I was just kind of like, well, I'm just going to take advantage. If the guy wants to be in my movie, and he's clearly above it all and, and deserves better, I'm just going to accept this gift I've been given. And I cast him. And it's funny because Mike's a friend, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm not scared of him anymore. Although I still am a little bit, admittedly. Probably just because I look up to the guy. And I've just I put him in, you know, almost everything 
when it was possible. I mean, I haven't been able to in some of this stuff with the pandemic, but I like working with the guy. He's good. I want to take advantage of his talents while he's willing to be a part of my movie universe. So once it was all over, we, we had our cast. And some of the actors that came in were terrible. I considered some of them because they were so bad. Because <laughs> I was like, it would be authentic, right? But at the same time, there's this nagging thing in my head that's still there, which is that regardless of the fact that I'm making cheesy B-movies, I want decent actors. I want people to treat it seriously. That was important to me some, from the very beginning. Because I was like, you know what? I could do the Larry Blameyer thing and just play it all as a joke, but I don't want to. I want to play it serious. I want to play it as if everything in this thing is real. And I made this as an executive decision very, very early on, which was that, and I still tell people this to this day, it doesn't matter how cheesy any of this is. It doesn't matter that that monster is made out of garbage bags. In this universe in which your character exists, if that garbage bag looking monster gets you, you're going to die. So you have to treat it as if you're going to die. Not just like, oh my God, I'm so scared. It's not a joke. You're going to die. The joke is not going to be that the monster is made of garbage bags. The joke is going to be that you're scared of it because you believe it will kill you. It'll be funny because from the outside looking in, we know it's a guy in a bad garbage bag monster suit. But you're treating it as if it's a damn rabid bear that wants to bite your head off. And that's where the jokes will be. Not in, look at how wooden I am as an actor. Which I had to walk some of the actors back from that. In particular, Justin Overlander. Not in a bad way. I'm not saying Justin's bad. He's not. He's very good. He and I sort of saw it differently at the beginning. But once he sort of figured out what I was going for, he was like, yeah, I'm all in. He's a filmmaker in his own right. So he had his own thoughts and ideas. And I was just like, no, don't do that. Don't play it poorly. Don't play it badly. Play it as best you got. If you got Shakespeare, give me Shakespeare. Because the joke will be the pure cheese of everything we're doing. And he got it. But that's not something we're going to talk about in this episode. We're going to talk about the making of The Monster Family next episode. So I'm about to wrap up. So I decided to make a movie. I wrote a script. I got equipment. I found actors. The last thing I needed to do was make a monster. This is one of my favorite stories of anything. I decided that in writing the script that it would be a lake monster. It would be a half-man, half-algae monster, which just didn't seem that scary, but also very 50s, because radiation, atomic waste. I started thinking about it, and I settled on the idea for the look of it that it would be kind of a leafy creature. I was inspired a little bit by the really bad monster in The Creature from the Haunted Sea, which is a Roger Corman movie, which is not good, but has... A very funny looking monster and it has these big googly bug eyes which i like that because a lot of those old movies always had these big bug-eyed monsters and i was like i want to do that i want to do something like that and i didn't know how or exactly what i was going to do and i started thinking about it. i was like well you know if i did like garbage bags and i shredded them up and i put them oh there it is that's it it's going to be garbage bags because it'll look like leaves and sort of like like seaweed is what I'm kind of going for. And then I'll just, I'll, I'll give them big bug eyes, kind of like that movie, The Creature from the Haunted Sea. And so I went to the dollar store and I bought everything I could think of that would work. I bought a ton of garbage bags and like I figured duct tape would work, right? If you just did it in rings 
around and then built from the bottom up, you could cover just, you know, regular clothes like some some sweats or some, you know, jeans or and like a long sleeve shirt and just built it up as these rings of shredded garbage bags. And then for the head, I'm like, oh, you know, it works perfectly is a mop bucket. A dollar mop bucket fits perfectly on Michael's head. You know, Michael and I went and we were looking at stuff. And he, it's like the mop bucket works. And I'll just pop some holes in it and make eyes. And I didn't know what the hell to do for eyes. So I bought uh, these tiny little strainers, the mini strainers. And I popped them on and I spray painted them. And basically I went and bought all this stuff. And Liz was, was between chemos and she was at home. And I had Liz and Elliot and and Steph, and we were just at home, and I was like, hey, Liz, you want to you help me with uh, this monster costume? And she was like, yeah, that sounds like fun. You know, she hadn't she didn't had a lot of fun for most of the year. She's like, yeah, how do I help? I was like, okay, well, I need chunks of garbage bags and, and all this stuff. And she's like, okay, cool. So her and Elliot and I, and Elliot's like two, so he's just having fun ripping stuff up, shredded garbage bags, and then I started just duct taping them in rings sort of starting from the bottom put it on the pants and then i put it you know go up around every leg and then around the whole body until i had this outfit that michael could fit into and i had some gardening gloves that i covered in duct tape and and the same thing duct tape and, and garbage bags and the same thing for the head and i had these eyeballs and i put it all together and, <laughs> and we put it on michael and i was like there's my monster <laughs> And it was this most ridiculous thing. And I was like, this is going to be the most amazing movie ever. You know, started getting kind of wrapped up in the excitement of, I'm making a movie. I got a cast. I got a monster. This is going to be great. I talked to Josh and I was like, we got a monster. He's like, sweet. All right. He's like, we had been talking, Josh and I, on a side note, about where we were going to shoot it. And I was thinking about, well, maybe we could find a park somewhere or something. We could get, get permits. I don't know. He said, well... You know, my wife grew up in a in a town not too far from where we are, and there's some people she, her parents still live near, have a bunch of wooded land in their backyard, basically, that we're going to talk to them about maybe the possibility of shooting there. I remember the night he went and looked at it. The people who owned it were really like, yeah, it's cool, let's do it. He called me the night he saw it, and he was like, this is perfect. It's perfect. We have to shoot here. And they'll let us, like, plug into their garage for, like, power and stuff. And I was like, sweet, let's do it. So it was like he went and just location scouted basically the entire movie because it was almost entirely shot in one spot, except the lake stuff. And then the lake stuff, he actually contacted the city of Woodbury where Carver Lake is, which is the stand-in for Phantom Lake, and said, we want to shoot this no-budget movie. Can we shoot at the lake? Do we need a permit? And they're like, no, you don't need a permit. You can just shoot it. Just it's public land, so if other people are doing stuff, you can't tell them they can't. You can't kick them off the land. You can't rope it off or do anything like that. So you just got to take your chances that people will be there. And I was like, okay, cool. So we had our location. We had our monster. Now, my favorite story I was going to tell real quick was, and this will be the last thing for this episode, I had Michael try on the monster costume, and, and he was super excited by it. And I was like, okay, well, we need to go out in the woods and take some pictures of it just to see what it looks like. Maybe do some test runs. And he was like, Okay, cool. Let's do it. Near my neighborhood, there's a big park. It's a chain of lakes and there's like walking paths between the lakes. So like there's wooded areas and walking paths and stuff, which are all over the Twin Cities here. 
So I was like, well, let's just go down over to the walking path over here and we'll, we'll, we'll get some shots. And I wanted to play with my camera because I'd finally gotten my camera and I just, I wanted an excuse to, to mess with it and play with it and get to know it a little bit. And so we went over to this wooded area and he's got this monster costume on and I'm sure the neighbors are like, okay, what the hell? And I'm like, okay, walk menacingly. And he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Michael's so funny. He just walks. <laughs> I'm like, no, menacingly. He's like, what? I was that mean? I'm like, I don't know. Like, hold up your arms or something. Like, you're going to get him. He's like, oh, like this. And he puts his arms up. And I'm like, yeah, okay, do it. And he does it. And I'm like, that just doesn't seem that menacing. You're just kind of reaching out and walking at people. And he's like, well, I mean, what do you want? I'm like, well, it needs something more. Do do something, just something to, to make it seem more menacing, more, more like you're going to get them. He's like, oh, okay. Oh, I got it. I'm like, okay. So he starts walking and he starts doing the little crab claw motion, <laughs> which I'm guessing you've seen the movie. He closes his hands, opens his hands, closes his hands. And I bust out laughing because I was like, that's it. That's your definition of more menacing. He's like, yeah. And it made me laugh. And I'm like, you know what? I think that's probably, probably what we should go with because it's so funny and it's just ridiculous. And I'm like, Okay, that's that's scary. <laughs> that was it. I was like, okay, just do that. In the script, it's it's played where it's like it always moves slow, but it always catches up. We thought it was so funny. I mean, at least I did. That it was just like that was Michael's idea. It was like, okay, how about this? He <laughs> just squeeze, open, close, open, <laughs> and so it stuck, and that was it. So here we are. We got ourselves a script. We got a camera, we got lighting equipment, we got audio equipment, we got a cast, we got locations. Josh had located someone who knew someone at his church who had this classic car that we could use for the scene that we would just shoot in the back parking lot of his church. And we just, we had everything set and ready to go. So let's do it. We're doing it. Making the monster of Phantom Lake. So this seems like the perfect place to stop. Next month, I'll be talking about the making of The Monster of Phantom Lake and the ultimate reaction to the final film. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed episode two, The Birth of the Monster of Phantom Lake. Or was it The Monster of Phantom Lake is Born? I don't remember. When I actually write this up as a book, I'll make decisions that will stay. <laughs> but thanks for listening to this episode two. Next, next month, we will talk about making the film and releasing the film and the chaos it wrought. I mean, not really chaos, but the path upon which I was now set as a result of this one goofy movie I just wanted to make and finally did. So that's it. Thanks for listening to this edition of An Oral History of the Mimiverse. Stephen D. Sullivan and St. Euphoria present Atomic Tales Stories of science, mystery, and excitement This episode features the latest installment in our fantastic original series Strange Invaders Tonight, our intrepid agents 3 and 8 investigate a cult of UFO enthusiasts in Prophet from the Stars Join us now as we present another in our continuing series of Atomic Tales. Tales. 
I'm so glad you're coming with us, Suzanne. Donna Hayes enthused. She leaned forward and poked her head over the front seat of Agent Aid's car. I think you'll find this get-together super exciting. If we're lucky, we might see some UFOs or even meet an alien visitor from the planet Metis. I've seen amazing things during these under-the-stars conclaves. I shot a sidelong glance at Donna's husband, William Wild Bill Hayes, who was driving us through the Indiana twilight to attend his wife's contactee meeting. Bill gave a little eye roll, signaling that he wasn't really into this true believer snipe hunt either. But here the three of us sat, me and Bill up front with Donna piping in from the back. She had insisted on taking the rear seat because I was a guest, and she didn't want all of us jammed together on the agency Studebaker's front bench. That'd sure be interesting, Donna, I replied. My wartime espionage training kept any skepticism from showing in my voice. Donna was a nice gal, but more gifted in looks than brains. Agent 7, Ruth Donlevy, says the same of Donna's husband. They're a matched pair, according to her. Still, Bill is reliable, especially in a fight, and I get along well with both of them, far too well to turn down this nutty invitation. You and Bill are supposed to investigate saucer sightings, aren't you? Donna had asked over dinner at their house. So, tag along. What can it hurt? Yeah. Bill had agreed. What can it hurt? If you get bored, you and Bill can wait in the car. Donna had concluded cheerfully. With that kind of setup, how could I refuse? Besides, the tilt of Bill's head told me he wanted company for this venture. So after dinner, we all piled into the car and... Bill pulled his black four-door champion up a rutted cow path to where somebody, the farm's owner probably, had cleared a patch in the tall prairie grass at the base of a lightly wooded hill. A dozen or so cars of various makes and models already sat around the edges of the clearing. A mowed path led from the parking area to the hilltop. A burnt orange horizon fading to a deep cerulean sky greeted us as we got out of the Studebaker. Evening stars blazed brightly overhead and the clear summer air smelled of newly mown grass. A hint of fertilizer and fresh sprung greenery wafted in from the nearby cornfields. Come on! Donna urged, hurrying uphill. A glance from Bill told me to hang back and take the hike more slowly. You go ahead, he called to his wife. We'll catch up. What's the scoop, Bill? I asked when Donna was out of earshot. Why'd you drag me out here? Because the more I've been away on assignment, the more Donna's fallen in with this crowd. He replied. I think it's a combination of her wanting to be part of my work, you know, investigating UFOs and stuff, plus her not wanting to move to Nevada. You heard the bureau's open to Reno branch, right? Yeah, to tackle the desert ant problem. Well, Donna doesn't really want me to go. I mean, she grew up here. And I think she thinks if she's in tie with the local community, I won't take the transfer. But I go where the agency sends me. And besides, I don't trust these compadres. She's been giving them a little money, and I think they're sniffing around for some more. So you want me to... Bill stopped trudging uphill and looked me straight in the eye. Suzanne, Donna likes you. She trusts you. And she knows you're a big brain. She won't believe me if I tell her these people are full of wild blueberry muffins but she might believe you. I'm not a scientist like Agent 7, I reminded him. Yeah, but Donna doesn't like Ruth. He replied. Too smarty pants for her. But you, you're just a regular gal. Besides, you're here, and as Agent 3, you outrank me and nearly everyone in the U.S. Science Bureau. People from this part of the country respect authority, Donna included. I sighed. Yeah, okay, I'll give it a shot. Then I laughed. Who knows? Maybe these kooks really do have a line on alien invaders. 
Those Greenpoint UFO sightings weren't that far from here, and I did come out to investigate flying saucer reports after all. A light fog rolled over the top of the hill as the two of us reached the rest of the group, all eagerly sitting cross-legged in front of a middle-aged blonde standing at the top of the hill. She wore white robes emblazoned with dark stars, moons, and planets. Soft white illumination from behind her filtered through the fog like celestial moonbeams. The lighting was obviously carefully staged. This show had already begun. Welcome, newcomers to our group tonight. The woman intoned solemnly. We also hope to welcome, if the astrological alignments are with us, our benevolent star brothers from the planet Metas. The stars are with us. The conclave folks, including Donna, responded in unison. A few also chanted, Star brothers, star brothers. That's Sister Starlight. Bill's wife whispered as we settled in next to her. Star, we call her. She's the one the Matusian ambassador visited first. She takes turns running the meetings with her husband, brother Tom. That's short for tomorrow. Is he here tonight? I asked, scanning the crowd. I don't see him yet, Donna replied. Maybe he'll show up later. Probably waiting downhill with the collection plate, Bill grumbled. I really hope we're worthy tonight. Donna gushed. Indeed, the stars are right. Sister Star declared, raising her arms high. Will you come with us? Will you journey the cosmos with your star brethren? We will! We will! Her little cult chimed. Now is the time, and this is the place! Sister Star shouted. Chant with me! Come in peace, star brothers! We await you! The rest of the crowd got to their feet, so Asian 8 and I did too. We didn't join in the chant, but Donna did. Come in peace, star brothers! We await you! Come in peace, star brothers! We await you! Suddenly, a red ball of light streaked through the clear sky overhead and landed behind the fog-bound hill. A flash momentarily turned everything brilliant white, and as my eyes recovered, the shadow of a figure appeared behind Sister Star. Donna pointed and shrieked, They're here! They've come! Sister Star stood stuck still, not even turning to greet the arrival of this amazing extraterrestrial visitor as, all around us, her flock went nuts. The newcomer's shadow loomed large behind its high priestess, towering over her, though the creature itself was short, maybe half her height. It had long arms, stubby legs, and wore a silvery bodysuit. A bulbous silver helmet covered its oversized head. Two people nearby fainted while Donna and the rest kept screaming with delight. Our brother, the High Ambassador from Metas, is in psychic communication with me, Sister Star announced, still not looking at the spaceman behind her. He bids you welcome. Bull feathers, I barked. I sprang up and rushed towards the Prophet and her alien buddy before anyone could stop me. Agent 8 followed hot on my heels. Wait! Stop! Sister Star cried as I sprinted past. Already, the Matusian ambassador was trying to lope off into the all-too-convenient fog. I clipped him with a strong backhand as I went. He squawked and thudded to the ground. I kept going. Bill, grab the alien, I shouted. Don't let Sister Star leave either. I've got bigger fish to fry. Right. Agent 8 replied. To say that Brother Tom, working the lights, the saucer-like flares, and the fog machine, was startled to see me barreling out of the mist would be an understatement. He tried to brain me with a big metal flashlight as I bore in. I ducked and clouded him with a surface regulation uppercut to the jaw. He went down in a heap. 
I couldn't help but grin. You should have seen that coming. Tomorrow. So, the alien was just a trained monkey in a silver suit. Agent 8 mused as the police took the space grifters and their pet away. Bill looked proud of the work we'd done tonight, and I couldn't blame him. I recognized the smell of their dry ice fog immediately when we sat down, I explained. That, plus the prearranged light show, was a dead giveaway that they were up to no good. This kind of hoax may play in Kentucky, but not here in Indiana, Bill declared proudly. Not with you and me around anyway, Rocky. I can't believe that Brother Tom and Sister Star were trying to cheat everyone. Donna moaned as we walked back to the agency Studebaker. The rest of her contactee friends had long ago drifted away, thoroughly disillusioned. Bill put his arm around his wife. There are a lot of common in this world, babe. I'm just glad we didn't take that train any further. Well, you can take me further, Bill Hayes. Donna announced. Liked that new bureau office in Reno? I could never live this down if we stayed here, and I won't even complain if your clothes come home smelling like fish, or bug guts, or anything. The two of them grinned at each other like young lovers. Good job tonight, Agent 8, I told Bill. You too, Agent 3, he replied. If you hadn't tagged along, Donna might have been kidnapped to the stars or God only knows where, and I'd have ended up a monkey's uncle. This has been an original story of Strange Invaders, part of our ongoing series of Atomic Tales. Brought to you by St. Euphoria Productions. Tonight's episode, Profit from the Stars, was written by Stephen D. Sullivan. It was produced and edited by Christopher R. Mim and was read by Rachel Grubb, who also played Agent 3, Suzanne Rocky Rockford. It featured Joe George as Agent 8, Wild Bill Hayes, Julie Fay as Donna Hayes, and Cherie Gallinati as Sister Starlight. Be sure to tune in next month for more Atomic Tales. Please support the films of Christopher R. Mim at SaintEuphoria.com and the work of Stephen D. Sullivan via his Patreon at PaySteve.com. Join the conversation at the Monster Conservancy at SaveMonsters.com. All elements of this episode are copyright 2021 by their creators and may not be reproduced or reused without permission. Atomic Tales and Strange Invaders are trademarks of Stephen D. Sullivan, all rights reserved. This is the St. Euphoria Audiocast Network. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Mimiverse Monthly Audiocast. I am, as always, your host, writer-director Christopher R. Mim. And as I always say, be good. But if you can't do that, be good at it. And one more thing. If, if, if you feel so inclined to help us out to keep the Mimiverse alive, please consider contributing to the current projects we're working on, the Mimiverse Holiday Special, and the family kids in the day the earth abruptly almost ended. Find us at SaintEuphoria.com or on Facebook or on Twitter or Instagram and all that good stuff. Don't forget, June 30th, The Phantom of Kids and the Beast Walks Among Us holds its digital debut. Oh, and one more thing, and this is very exciting. Dr. Bob Tesla of Midnight Monster Movies with Dr. Bob is back. And because he's missed a few months... He didn't send us just one joke. He sent us one joke for every month he's missed. So I'm going to take off, but you get to be entertained, quote unquote, by the comedy stylings of Dr. Bob. Take it away, Dr. Bob. <laughs> it is I, Dr. Bob Tesla, 
with your Mimiverse Jokes of the Month. Yes, we're doing jokes. Since I've missed it the past couple of times, I'm sure you have missed my jokes as well. And you know, it's the beginning of summer, so let's do some summer jokes for you. Where do sharks go for their summer vacation? Finland. Did you know that electric cars have to have a vacation every year? They just have to get away and recharge their batteries. There are two pigs sitting on a warm beach in the sun, and one of them turns to the other and says, Oh man, I'm bacon. Tune in to our Twitch channel at twitch.tv slash drbobtesla. Every week we have new content. We've got Thursday where we've got classic video games at 6 o'clock. 10 o'clock on Fridays we have a new chapter of Cliffhanger Theater, which is an episode from an old serial every single week. Right now we're currently about halfway through Flying Discman from Mars. And later this month, here at the end of June, we will be doing a Vincent Price mini-marathon. So make sure you subscribe to us over there on Twitch and get in on the action. <laughs> <laughs>